Part two, chapter eight of The Life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Life of Florence Nightingale, volume one, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part two, chapter eight. The Religious Difficulty. Your sectarians of every species, small and great, Catholic or Protestant, of high church or low, these are the true fog children. Ruskin. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings. St. Paul. Every generation has its own religious difficulty, by which phrase is meant not the difficulty which the individual soul or the collective soul of a nation may find in its religious beliefs themselves, but a difficulty which intrudes itself into allied or alien matters from the sphere of religious disputation. In the present day, the religious difficulty with which we are most familiar concerns questions of education. In the days of Miss Nightingale's mission to the East, there was a religious difficulty in questions of nursing. It was not enough that such a mission as hers was conceived in the very spirit of the founder of Christianity, I was sick and ye visited me. The question was eagerly and angrily canvassed under which of the rival Christian banners the visitation of the sick soldiers should be, and was being, carried on. The country had at the time hardly recovered its mental equilibrium after the shock administered to it by the Tractarian movement, and echoes of the No Popery cry of 1850 were still resonant in many quarters. The religious difficulty appeared at the very start of Miss Nightingale's Crimean work, and dogged her footsteps to the end of it. I have dealt already with the difficulties which her experiment encountered from social ideas, military prejudices, official routine, but I am not sure that of all her difficulties the religious one was not the most wearing and worrying, as it was also assuredly the most unnecessary and the least excusable. It developed a noble undertaking in a fog of envy, strife, and futile railing. Mr. Sidney Herbert who was supposed to be of the high church persuasion, had scented the difficulty from the first, as we have heard, and Miss Nightingale was keenly alive to it. They had desired to make the first party of nurses representative of all the leading sects, but owing to the abstention of a Protestant institution, the Roman Catholics and the high church party were in a considerable majority among the thirty-eight nurses. This fact gave the alarm, and a sectarian hue and cry was immediately raised, it began, as I am sorry to have to say, in the daily news. It was taken up, as goes without saying, in the so-called religious press. On October 28, 1854, when Miss Nightingale was on her way to Scutari, an attack upon her was given great prominence in the first-named paper. It was signed Antipusiite, and it included the text of Mr. Herbert's letter which had somehow or other been obtained. Miss Nightingale recruited her staff of nurses from Miss Sellen's house, a high church one, and from a Romanist establishment. This awful fact explained the party spirit which actuated the choice of Miss Nightingale for this important and responsible office, and which set aside Lady Maria Forrester, a lady, it seems, of evangelical principles. It was not yet too late to remedy the offense, if the feeling of the nation be at once aroused and expressed. A reader of the Bible and other correspondence followed, and the controversy raged furiously. Mrs. Sidney Herbert's intervention, with an assurance that Miss Nightingale was somewhat low church, did not stop it. S. G. O. referred to it in his book. 
I have heard and read, he wrote, with indignation the remarks hazarded upon her religious character. Her works ought to answer for her faith. If there is blame in looking for a Roman Catholic priest to attend a dying Romanist, let me share it with her. I did it again and again. An admirable avowal, but not calculated, I fear, to allay the anger of no-popery fanatics. The publication of Queen Victoria's letter of December 6th, showing the confidence which Her Majesty placed in Miss Nightingale, did something to stem the tide, but for many months the feud flowed on in the press. 2. Miss Nightingale's comment, when echoes of the storm reached her on the Bosphorus, was characteristic. They tell me, she wrote to Mr. Herbert, January 28, 1855, that there is a religious war about poor me in the Times, and that Mrs. Herbert has generously defended me. I do not know what I have done to be so dragged before the public, but I am glad that my God is not the God of the High Church or of the Low, that he is not a Romanist or an Anglican or a Unitarian. I don't believe he is even a Russian, though his events go strangely against us. N.B. A Greek once said to me at Salamis, I do believe God Almighty is an Englishman. Excellent, too, was the answer given by an Irish clergyman when asked to what sect Miss Nightingale belonged. She belongs to a sect which, unfortunately, is a very rare one, the sect of the Good Samaritan. Miss Nightingale was by descent a Unitarian, by practice a communicant of the Church of England, but she was addicted neither to high church nor to low. Her God was the God of moral law, a God of infinite pity and benevolence, but also one who worked out his purpose by the free will of human instruments. Her service to God was the service of man, and her service of man mingled efficiency with tenderness. She applied only one kind of test to a nurse. Was she a good woman, and did she know her business? To be a good woman, a religious woman, a noble woman was not in itself sufficient. Excellent, gentle, self-devoted women, Miss Nightingale said in a note upon some of her staff, fit more for heaven than for a hospital. They flit about like angels without hands among the patients and soothe their souls while they leave their bodies dirty and neglected. They never complain, they are eager for self-mortification. But I came not to mortify the nurses, but to nurse the wounded. Therefore, if a nurse was a good woman and knew her business, it was nothing that she was a Romanist, Anglican, High Church, Low Church, or Unitarian. If she was not a good nurse, the fact that she belonged or did not belong to this or that persuasion was no recommendation. Miss Nightingale was, it is true, desirous from the first to include Roman Catholics in her staff, and she did so, in spite of many difficulties, to the end. But her reasons therein were practical, not sectarian. In the first place, many of the soldiers were Roman Catholics, and secondly, her apprenticeship in nursing had shown her the excellent qualities, as nurses, of many Catholic sisters. But here efficiency was the test, and a Protestant deaconess from Kaiserwerth was all one to her with a sister from a Romanist establishment. And one practical advantage of avowed sisters was that she did not lose them from marriage. One morning six nurses came in to Miss Nightingale, declaring that they one and all wished to be married. They were followed by six soldiers, sergeants and corporals, declaring their desire to claim the nurses as brides. This matrimonial deluge carried off six of her best nurses. 3. Such, then, was Miss Nightingale's position, and one can understand the amused contempt with which she heard of the picture drawn of her in certain quarters as a conspirator in a Tactarian or Romanist plot. 
but she was a practical person, and, though herself broad-minded, took stock of a narrower world as she found it. She was intensely desirous of making her experiment of women nurses a success, and she felt acutely the danger of wrecking it by even the suspicion of sectarian prejudice. This fact supplies a further explanation of the alarm with which she received the coming of the second party of nurses under Miss Stanley. It included a batch of fifteen nuns. The proportion of our Catholics, she wrote to Mr. Herbert, which is already making an outcry, you have increased to twenty-five and eighty-four. Mr. Menzies, the principal medical officer, has declared that he will have only two at the general hospital, and I cannot place them here, in the barrack hospital, in a greater proportion than I have done, without exciting the suspicion of the medical men and others. The difficulty was ultimately adjusted, but only at the cost of infinite trouble and worry to Miss Nightingale. Her letters to Mr. Herbert are full of references to the subject, some of them very amusing, and perhaps it was her lively sense of humor that helped to carry her through this religious difficulty. Such a tempest, she wrote, December 25, 1854, has been brewed in this little pint pot as you could have no idea of, but I, like the ass, have put on the lion's skin, and when once I have done that, poor me, who never affronted anyone before, I can bray so loud that I shall be heard, I am afraid, as far as England. However, this is no place for lions, and as for asses, we have enough. One proposition made to her was that, as the doctors did not want many more women nurses, ten of the Protestants should be apportioned as clerical females by the chaplains, and ten of the nuns by the priests, not as nurses, but as female ecclesiastics. With this, of course, I have nothing to do. It being directly at variance with my instructions, I cannot, of course, appropriate the government money to such a purpose. Miss Nightingale's own proposition was to allocate the party in various proportions to various hospitals. But the superior of the new set of nuns objected that it would be uncanonical for any of her party to be separated from her. Then Miss Nightingale proposed sending some of the nuns, either of the first or the second batch, back to England. But Father Cuff said that to send them away would be like driving the Blessed Virgin through the desert by Herod. I believe it may be proved as a logical proposition, wrote Miss Nightingale, in the midst of her religious difficulty, that it is impossible for me to ride through all this. My keck is upset, but I am sticking on the bottom still. Three days later, she still despaired. The fifteen new nuns are leading me the devil of a life, trying to get in E. Vet Hermes, and will upset the coach. There is little doubt of that. However, she held her ground. She had started with a Protestant howl at her. She was now prepared to face a Roman Catholic storm. Happily, the Reverend Mother of the first party of nuns was on her side, and strove to compose the canonical difficulty. To another Reverend Mother, who was less peaceably minded, Miss Nightingale often referred in her letters as the Reverend Brickbat. In any case, Miss Nightingale was resolved, as she wrote, not to let our little society become a hotbed of Roman Catholic intriguettes. Ultimately, it was arranged that five of the second party of nuns should go to the general hospital and ten to the newly opened hospital at Kuleli. Miss Nightingale suspected some of the second party of a desire to proselytize, and presently she had to inform Mr. Herbert, February 15, 1855, of a charge of converting and rebaptizing before death, reported to me by the senior chaplain, by him to the commandant, by him to the commander-in-chief. She promptly exchanged the suspected nun. The ingenuity of theological rancor was infinite. Having caught wind of the fact that there was some difference of view among the Roman Catholic sisters, 
An evangelical writer sought to fan the flame by denouncing the absurdity of Catholic nuns transferring their allegiance from the Pope of Rome to a Protestant lady. One of the sisters, on hearing of this diatribe, playfully addressed Miss Nightingale as Your Holiness, who in turn dubbed the sister her cardinal. I hereby give notice, in case Crimean letters from Miss Nightingale should chance to be printed, such as I have seen, in which she says, I do so want my cardinal, that the expression signifies no dark and secret adhesion to any prince of the Romanish church, but only a desire for the services of a particularly efficient nursing sister. If a nurse was efficient, Miss Nightingale was on the friendliest terms with her, equally whether the nurse was Catholic or Protestant. Miss Nightingale herself was accused successively, and with equal absurdity in each case, of being prejudiced for or against Catholics and Protestants, and of being inimical to religious ministrations altogether. The Protestant charges of proselytizing by Catholic nurses were of course met by counter-charges of attempts by Protestant nurses to convert Roman Catholic patients. And finally a chaplain solemnly appealed to the War Department in London to remove one of Miss Nightingale's staff on the ground that the nurse had been heard to avow herself a Socinian. Miss Nightingale protested successfully against any such disciplinary measure, urging that the lady, whether Socinian or not, was an excellent nurse. Much of all this perverse disputing was born of sheer ignorance and intolerance. One of Miss Stanley's ladies was accused by a certain chaplain of circulating improper books in the wards. Particulars were asked, and it was found that the offending book was Kebble's Christian Year. No sooner was any one phase of the religious difficulty adjusted than another appeared. There were Anglicans and Roman Catholics among the Nightingale nurses, and there were others selected from English hospitals who, so far as their religious views were concerned, might be anything or nothing. But why, it was asked, were there no Presbyterians? Representations were made to the War Office. I object, wrote Miss Nightingale, February 19, 1855, to the principle of sending out anyone qua sectarian, not qua nurse. But this already having been done in the case of the R.C.s, etc., I do not see how the Presbyterians can be refused, and therefore let six trained nurses be sent out, if you think fit, of whom let two-thirds be Presbyterians. But I must bar these fat, drunken old dames. Above fourteen stone we will not have. The provision of bedsteads is not strong enough. Three were nearly swamped in a cake, whom Mr. Bracebridge was conducting to the ship, and, had he not walked with fear of the police before his eyes, he might easily have swamped them whole. The stout old dames were not Presbyterians, but, sad to relate, two of the Presbyterian party did turn out to be over-fond of drink, and Miss Nightingale had to return them to England. I regret to say that there were similar cases not amongst the Presbyterians. The charges and countercharges of proselytism were referred by the chaplains to the Secretary of State. Lord Panmure, in reply, April 27, 1855, had to say in the first place, that he has perused the correspondence with great regret, and that he deeply laments to find that religious differences have arisen to such an extent as to mar the united energies and labors of those who are devoting themselves, with such disinterestedness and heroic courage, and success, to the relief of the sick and wounded. The minister then proceeded to promulgate instructions designed to prevent any proselytism by the nurses and sisters. Unfortunately, his dispatch was worded as to make things, from Miss Nightingale's point of view, no better, but rather worse. The instructions, she wrote to Lady Canning, September 9, 1855, 
have been so completely misunderstood that they have been my principal difficulty. The R.C.s, who before were quite amiable, have chosen to construe this rule that they are not to enter upon the discussion of religious subjects with any patients other than those of their own faith, to mean, therefore, with all of their own faith. And the second party of nuns who came out now wander over the whole hospital out of nursing hours, not confining themselves to their own wards, nor even to patients, but instructing, it is their own word, groups of orderlies and convalescents in the corridors, doing the work each of ten chaplains and bringing ridicule upon the whole thing while they quote the words of the war office. Lady Channing, who was at this time acting as Miss Nightingale's agent for the enlistment of nurses, had proposed to embody Lord Panmure's instructions in the printed rules and regulations. Miss Nightingale begged her to do no such thing. I doubt not that Miss Nightingale's own verbal instructions were less ambiguous. She was one who never failed to say exactly what she meant. 4. A great obstacle with which Miss Nightingale's work in the East had to contend throughout was the scarcity at the time of properly trained nurses. She had long ago formed a resolve to remedy this defect. The seriousness of it was still further enforced upon her mind by painful experience in the Crimean War, and her resolve was the more strengthened. The religious difficulty, demanding that nurses should be selected, to some extent not qua nurses, but qua sectarians, accentuated the obstacle of inadequate training, which, however, would in any case have existed. The case is excellently put, in terms which doubtless reflect Miss Nightingale's own views, in a letter from Lady Verney to Mrs. Gaskell, May 17, 1855. Until women have gone through a real training, it is vain to hope that four or five weeks in a hospital can fit them for one of the most difficult works that anyone can be called on to undertake. I cannot tell you the details, you can guess many of them, but when I hear estimable people talking as if you could turn forty women of all ranks, degrees of virtue, and intelligence into a military hospital, with drunken orderlies, unmarried chaplains, young surgeons, etc., etc., and expect that they are not more likely to be unwise or tempted astray than the R.C. Sisters of Charity, who are bound by well-considered vows, love of their kind, and the fear of hellfire, then we feel that estimable people have very little knowledge of human nature. F.'s form of sisterhood is infinitely higher, I believe, than the R.C., and will be carried out, I doubt no more than in her own existence, but as it must exist without the checks and safeguards of the other and inferior form, so it requires higher elements in the actors and a more severe training and examination, instead of which the loosest possible choice takes place by people most excellent but not in the least qualified to choose. Goodwill and a love of nursing is enough for the lady class. It is the fact though it is not popularly known, that Miss Nightingale was at this time strongly opposed to lady nurses. She objected to them, not because they were ladies, but because they were unlikely to be well trained. Pious and benevolent ladies were more given, she said, to spiritual flirtations with the patients than apt at the proper business of surgical nursing. It was the trained hospital nurses that she preferred. There were among the 125 women who passed through her hands in the East more efficient and less, and in so large a flock there were some black sheep. But amongst the band, in all classes and of all denominations, there were devoted and competent women whose service deserves to be held in grateful remembrance beside those of their lady-in-chief. And as I have had to record Miss Nightingale's criticism upon some of the Roman Catholics among her flock, 
It should be added that of others, she wrote to Mr. Herbert, They are the truest Christians I ever met with, invaluable in their work, devoted heart and head to serve God and mankind, not to intrigue for their church. To the Reverend Superior, who came out from Bermondsey with the first party of nuns, Miss Nightingale was particularly attached. She writes, says Cardinal Wiseman, that great part of her success is due to Reverend Mother Bermondsey, without whom it would have been a failure. The aspect of Miss Nightingale's work touched upon in this chapter adds another to the accumulation of difficulties with which she had to deal. It was the one which troubled her most. In this sink of misery, in this tussle of life or death, she felt the bitter futility of personal grievances and religious differences. It is worry more than work that kills, and the religious difficulty was perhaps the last straw which caused the lady-in-chief to break down, as we shall hear in the next chapter, under her heavy load of responsibility and care. End of chapter 8